Welcome to another in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 12, Paul, Mission and Message. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, New King James Version. Drawing on Old Testament prophetic messages, Jewish history, and the life and teachings of Jesus, Paul developed the Christian concept of salvation history, all centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because of his cultural background in both Judaism and in Greco-Roman society, Paul possessed sufficient insights to allow him to lift the gospel out from the complexity of Hebrew civil ritual and moral practices of Jewish life and make it more accessible to a multicultural world. Paul's 13 letters to the believers applied faith to their lives. He touched doctrinal as well as practical topics. He counseled, encouraged, and admonished on matters of personal Christianity, relationships, and church life. Nevertheless, throughout his letters, his main theme was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul was not only a man of letters, well-educated. He also became known as the apostolic missionary par excellence, witnessing to the gospel from Syria to Italy, perhaps even to Spain. Within a decade, Paul established churches in four provinces of the Roman Empire. In this exploration, we will carefully consider Paul's mission and message. First Corinthians chapter 1 verses 22 to 24 provide a glimpse into the challenges that the Apostle Paul faced in his efforts to persuade people to become Christians. For while Jews demandingly ask for signs and miracles, and Greeks pursue philosophy and wisdom, we preach Christ, the Messiah crucified, preaching which to the Jews is a scandal and an offense stumbling block that springs a snare or trap, and to the Gentiles it is absurd and utterly unphilosophical nonsense. But to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Have you noticed that some people equate truth with similar criteria, either that it be simply sensational, signs and miracles, or philosophically profound? 
How would you describe Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ? How do his words help you witness to various people groups? In the exodus from slavery in Egypt, God worked remarkable signs of providential care for Israel. Later generations of Jews developed the expectation that any new messenger sent from God should make themselves known by signs and wonders and miracles. In contrast, in line with their philosophical and scientific heritage, Greeks sought a rational basis for belief, one that would satisfy the demands of human wisdom. Paul did not dismiss the cultural and spiritual heritage of his target peoples, but used it as an entry point for proclaiming Christ crucified. Those who desired signs found them in the life and ministry of Jesus and in the early church. Those who wanted logical elegance and rationality found it in Paul's arguments for the gospel message. Both types of persons ultimately had only one need, and that was to know the risen Christ and the power of his resurrection. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. How Paul brought them to that knowledge depended upon the people to whom he was witnessing. When Paul preached to Jewish listeners, he based his sermons on the history of Israel, linking Christ to David and emphasizing the Old Testament prophecies pointing to Christ and foretelling his crucifixion and resurrection. An example of his preaching is found in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 16 to 41. He started out with what was familiar to them, with what they revered and believed, and from that starting point, he sought to bring them to Christ. For Gentiles, Paul's message included God as creator, upholder, and judge, the entry of sin into the world, and salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's listen to two sets of verses. Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, and chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. Men, why are you doing this? We also are only human beings, of nature like your own. And we bring you the good news, gospel, that you should turn away from these foolish and vain things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that they contain. In generations past, he permitted all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not neglect to leave some witness of himself. For he did you good and showed you kindness and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with nourishment and happiness. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the center of the Areopagus, Mars Hill meeting place, said, Men of Athens! I perceive in every way, on every hand, and with every turn I make, that you are most religious or very reverent to demons. For as I passed along and carefully observed your objects of worship, I came also upon an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now what you are already worshipping is unknown, this I set forth to you the God who produced and formed the world and all things in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in handmade shrines. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he lacked anything. For it is he himself who gives life and breath to all things to all people. And he made from one common origin, one source, one blood, all nations of men to settle on the face of the earth, having definitely determined their allotted periods of time and the fixed boundaries of their habitation, their settlements, lands, and abodes, so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him, although he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we ought not to suppose that deity, the Godhead, is like gold or silver or stone, of the nature a representation by human art and imagination, or anything constructed or invented. Such former ages of ignorance God, it is true, ignored and allowed to pass unnoticed. But now he charges all people everywhere to repent, to change their minds for the better, and heartily to amend their ways with abhorrence of their past sins. Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world righteously, justly by a man whom he has destined and appointed for that task, and he has made this credible and given conviction and assurance and evidence to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul had to work from a different starting point with these people than he did with the Jews or with Gentiles who believed in the Jewish faith. Here too, though, his goal was to lead them to Jesus. Think about your own faith. On what is it based? What good reasons do you have for it? And how might your reasons differ from those of other people? And why is it important to recognize these differences? Soldiers and Athletes As a skilled communicator, Paul in his mission work used the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. He took everyday features of the Greco-Roman world to illustrate the practical reality of new life in Christ. He drew especially from two areas of his convert's world for his teaching metaphors, athletes with their games and the ever-present Roman soldier. Fondness for athletic accomplishments gripped Paul's world, much as it does ours. Ancient Greeks transmitted their love of competition by holding over the centuries no fewer than four separate cycles of Olympic-type contests located in different parts of Greece. Romans inherited and further promoted athletic competition. Foot races were the most popular events and included a race of men wearing full suits of military armor. Wrestling also was popular. Athletes trained assiduously and winners were richly rewarded. Ethnicity, nationality, and social class mattered little since endurance and performance were the goals. What key lessons for the Christian life would Paul's readers have found in the following passages describing athletes? 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run your race, that you may lay hold of the prize and make it yours. Now every athlete who goes into training conducts himself temperately and restricts himself in all things. They do it to win a wreath that will soon wither, but we do it to receive a crown of eternal blessedness that cannot wither. Therefore I do not run uncertainly without definite aim. I do not box like one beating the air and striking without an adversary, but like a boxer, I buffet my body, handle it roughly, discipline it by hardships, and subdue it for fear that after proclaiming to others the gospel and things pertaining to it, I myself should become unfit, not stand the test, be unapproved, and rejected as a counterfeit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7. You were running the race nobly. Who has interfered and hindered and stopped you from your heeding and following the truth? 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you were summoned and for which you confessed the good confession of faith before many witnesses. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And if anyone enters competitive games, he is not crowned unless he competes lawfully or fairly according to the rules laid down. Starting with Marius, Roman emperors replaced temporary soldiers with full-time career warriors, garrisoned them across the Roman Empire, and upgraded and standardized their armor and weapons. By Paul's time, Soldiers were recruited from various ethnic and national groups, whether or not they were Roman citizens. In return for rewards at the end of their term of service, soldiers pledged total loyalty to the ruling emperor, who in times of conflict personally led them into battle. In the following passages, what comparisons did Paul make between soldiering and the Christian life? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical, weapons of flesh and blood, but they are mighty before God for the overthrow and destruction of strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. In conclusion, be strong in the Lord. Be empowered through your union with Him. Draw your strength from Him. That strength which his boundless might provides. Put on God's whole armor, the armor of a heavy-armed soldier which God supplies, that you may be able successfully to stand up against all the strategies and the deceits of the devil. For we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, contending only with physical opponents, but against the despotisms, against the powers, against the master spirits who are the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spirit forces of wickedness in the heavenly supernatural sphere. Therefore, put on God's complete armor, 
that you may be able to resist and stand your ground on the evil day of danger, and having done all the crisis demands, to stand firmly in your place. Stand therefore, hold your ground, having tightened the belt of truth around your loins, and having put on the breastplate of integrity, and of moral rectitude, and right standing with God. And having shod your feet in preparation to face the enemy with the firm-footed stability, the promptness, and the readiness produced by the good news of the gospel of peace. Lift up over all the covering shield of saving faith, upon which you can quench all the flaming missiles of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword that the Spirit wields, which is the word of God. Pray at all times, on every occasion, in every season, in the Spirit, with all manner of prayer and entreaty. To that end, keep alert and watch with strong purpose and perseverance, interceding in behalf of all the saints, God's consecrated people. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you were summoned, and for which you confessed the good confession of faith before many witnesses. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Take with me your share of the hardships and suffering which you were called to endure as a good first-class soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier when in service gets entangled in the enterprises of civilian life. His aim is to satisfy and please the one who enlisted him. In what is perhaps Paul's final letter, he applied both soldiering and athletics to his own view of his life as a Christian missionary. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7, New International Version. In what ways is faith a fight, and in what ways a race? How have you experienced the reality of both metaphors in your own Christian life? Which metaphor best describes your own experience, and why? Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Romans chapter 3, verse 31, New International Version. What law must Paul be talking about? In English translations of Paul's letters, the word law appears about 130 times, and in the Acts of the Apostles, about 20 times. Paul endeavored to get his hearers and readers regardless of cultural background, to understand that law 
carried several meanings, especially for Jews. Laws such as the Ten Commandments are enforced for all people at all times. But other kinds of laws in the Old Testament and in the Jewish culture, Paul did not consider enforced for Christians. In his writings, the Apostle used the word law broadly in reference to rules for religious ceremonies, civil law, health laws, and purification laws. He wrote about, one, being under the law, Romans 3.19, two, being released from the law, Romans chapter 7 and verse 6, and number three, he described a law of sin, Romans chapter 7 verse 25, but also, number four, law that is holy, Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. Number five, he mentioned law of Moses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 9, but also, number six, the law of God, Romans chapter 7 and verse 25. Confusing as these phrases may seem to non-Jews, for the Jewish believer brought up in the Hebrew culture, the context would make clear which law was meant. Here is a question to be answered by the following six references written by Paul. How do these verses help us to understand that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, was not nullified at the cross? Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Keep out of debt and owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor, who practices loving others, has fulfilled the law relating to one's fellow man, meeting all its requirements. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, having an evil desire, and any other commandment, are summed up in the single command, you shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. Love does no wrong to one's neighbor. It never hurts anybody. Therefore, love meets all the requirements and is the fulfilling of the law. Romans chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Well then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you teach against stealing, do you steal? Take what does not really belong to you? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Are you unchaste in action or in thought? You who abhor and loathe idols, do you rob temples? Do you appropriate to your own use what is consecrated to God, thus robbing the sanctuary and doing sacrilege? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law, by stealthily infringing upon or carelessly neglecting or openly breaking it? For, as it is written, the name of God is maligned and blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The words to this effect are from your own scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 19 For circumcision is nothing and counts for nothing. Neither does uncircumcision, but what counts is keeping the commandments of God. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 and 28 Therefore, rejecting all falsity and being done now with it, let everyone express the truth with his neighbor, for we are all parts of one body and members one of another. Verse 28. 
Let the thief steal no more, but rather let him be industrious, making an honest living with his own hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. But immorality, sexual vice, and all impurity of lustful, rich, wasteful living, or greediness, must not even be named among you, as is fitting and proper among saints, God's consecrated people. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 2. Honor, esteem, and value as precious your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Let's ask the question again. How do these verses help us to understand that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, was not nullified at the cross? Paul realized that the ceremonial laws, detailing how one approached God through priesthood, Hebrew sanctuary, and sacrifices, ceased to be valid after the crucifixion. They had served their purposes in their time, but were now no longer needed. This point would become especially apparent after the destruction of the temple. With the moral law expressed by the Ten Commandments, however, matters are different. In his letters, Paul quotes some of the Ten Commandments and alludes to others as universal ethical demands on all people, Jewish as well as Gentile. Having written against the practice of sin, Paul would not in any way have diminished the very law that defines what sin is. That would make about as much sense as telling someone not to violate the speed limit, while at the same time telling them the speed limit signs are no longer valid. cross and the resurrection. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, the New King James Version. No question the cross of Christ was central to all that Paul lived and taught. But Paul didn't teach the cross in a vacuum. Instead, he taught it in the context of other teachings as well. And one of them, perhaps the one most intricately linked to the cross, was the resurrection, without which the cross would have been in vain. We will hear 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 22. As you listen, answer these questions. What do these verses say which shows how crucial the death and resurrection of Jesus are to the gospel. Why is a proper understanding of death as a sleep crucial for making sense of these texts? In other words, if the dead in Christ are already in heaven, what is Paul talking about here? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 22, Paul says, 
But now if Christ, the Messiah, is preached as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is in vain. It amounts to nothing. And your faith is devoid of truth and is fruitless, without effect, empty, imaginary, and unfounded. We are even discovered to be misrepresenting God. For we testified of him that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise in case it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is mere delusion, futile, fruitless, and you are still in your sins, under the control and penalty of sin. And further, those who have died in spiritual fellowship and union with Christ have perished, are lost. If we who are abiding in Christ have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. But the fact is that Christ, the Messiah, has been raised from the dead, and he became the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since it was through a man that death came into the world, it is also through a man that the resurrection of the dead has come. For just as because of their union of nature in Adam all people die, so also, by virtue of their union of nature, shall all in Christ be made alive. Unfortunately, the majority of Christian traditions, as well as non-Christian religions, believe strongly in the immortality of the human soul. Against this belief, however, Paul emphasized repeatedly that only God has immortality. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, which appearing will be shown forth in his own proper time by the blessed, only sovereign ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality in the sense of exemption from every kind of death, and lives in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. Unto him be honor and everlasting power and dominion. Amen. So be it. Immortality is a gift from God to the saved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of summons with the shout of an archangel, and with the blast of the trumpet of God, and those who have departed this life in Christ will rise first. Death is asleep until Christ returns. Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6, 18, and 20. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, Paul encourages those who are grieving. Now also we would not have you ignorant, brethren, about those who fall asleep in death, 
that you may not grieve for them as the rest do who have no hope beyond the grave. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will also bring with him, through Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in death. For this we declare to you by the Lord's own word, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way proceed into his presence or have any advantage at all over those who have previously fallen asleep in him in death. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 6, 18, and 20, he anchors his teaching on the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Then later he showed himself to more than 500 brethren at one time, the majority of whom are still alive but some have fallen asleep in death. Verses 16 to 20. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is mere delusion, futile, fruitless, and you are still in your sins, under the control and penalty of sin. And further, those who have died in spiritual fellowship and union with Christ have perished, are lost. If we who are abiding in Christ have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. But the fact is that Christ the Messiah has been raised from the dead, and he became the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. Worship in almost all religions includes numerous false teachings based on the false concept of the immortality of the soul. These errors include things like reincarnation, praying to saints, veneration of ancestral spirits, an eternally burning hell, and many New Age practices such as channeling or astral projection. A true understanding of the Bible's teaching on death is the only real protection against these great deceptions. How unfortunate, too, that those who show the strongest inclination against accepting this truth are Christians of other denominations. A believer closes his or her eyes in death, and after what seems like a moment of darkness and silence, he or she is awakened to eternal life at the second coming. What does the truth about the state of the dead reveal to us about God's character? Getting along. Paul was a hard worker with a strong personality and a singleness of purpose. Such persons can be loners with few friends but many admirers. However, on his travels, two or three fellow workers often accompanied Paul. At least eight of these close fellow workers are mentioned by name. Listen. Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate now for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Acts chapter 15, verses 22 and 37. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church, resolved to select men from among their number and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brethren, and sent to them. Jumping to verse 37, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, his near relative. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. And Paul went down to Derbe and also to Lystra. A disciple named Timothy was there, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. She had become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the author of eternal salvation, and yielded obedience to him. But Timothy's father was a Greek. He, Timothy, had a good reputation among the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul desired Timothy to go with him as a missionary, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, all of whom knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy had a good reputation among the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul desired Timothy to go with him as a missionary, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, all of whom knew that his father was a Greek. Acts chapter 19 and verse 22. And having sent two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, into Macedonia, he himself stayed on in the province of Asia for a while. Colossians chapter 4 verses 7, 10, and 11. Tychicus will give you full information about my affairs. He is a much-loved brother and a faithful ministering assistant and a fellow servant with us in the Lord. Verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, wishes to be remembered to you, as does Mark the relative of Barnabas. You received instructions concerning him. If he comes to you, give him a hearty welcome. And greetings also from Jesus, who is called Justice. These Hebrew Christians alone of the circumcision are among my fellow workers for the extension of God's kingdom, and they have proved a relief and a comfort to me. And Philemon 24 And from Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. To these verses must be added Paul's greeting to 24 people in Romans 16, in addition to general greetings to households. The apostle believed in teamwork, especially in pioneering situations. At the same time, however, he did at times have conflict with fellow laborers. Acts chapter 15 verses 36 to 41 describes the situation. And after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us go back and again visit and help and minister to the brethren in every town where we made known the message of the Lord and see how they're getting along. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, his near relative. But Paul did not think it best to have along with them the one who had quit and deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone on with them to the work. And there followed a sharp disagreement between them, so that they separated from each other. 
And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul selected Silas and set out, being commended by the brethren to the grace, the favor, and mercy of the Lord. And he passed through Syria and Cilicia, establishing and strengthening the churches. What happened? And what does it tell us about the humanity of even these great workers for the Lord? It was here that Mark, overwhelmed with fear and discouragement, wavered for a time in his purpose to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Unused to hardships, he was disheartened by the perils and privations of the way. This desertion caused Paul to judge Mark unfavorably and even severely for a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. He felt anxious that Mark should not abandon the ministry, for he saw in him qualifications that would fit him to be a useful worker for Christ. The book is entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. You will find that quotation on pages 169 and 170. The author is Ellen G. White. The account in Acts reveals that Paul expected his companions to persevere in the toils and perils of their mission. For Paul, the close team constituted a church in miniature. He stressed the importance of setting a good example, the imitation model of mission. Dutiful yet loving relationships among team members became a pattern for the churches, which were often based on households. The team also provided an ideal setting for the training of new evangelists and missionaries. Of course, at times things didn't always run smoothly, as in the case of John Mark. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very helpful to me for the ministry. What does this verse reveal about growth and forgiveness? We all make mistakes. How can you learn to forgive the people whose mistakes have hurt you? And think also about the people whom you've hurt with your mistakes. How have you sought to bring healing? in those situations? Or, if you haven't yet, why not do it now? We'll be right back. Variant views of sexuality, incest, homosexuality, no sexual limits, too many sexual limits, misunderstanding God's gift of marriage, instead of loving others, showing how we're superior to them. Sound like modern problems? Maybe even some issues in your church? Hi, I'm Duane Boyer, and I want to give you a personal invitation to join us in exploring Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The problems we deal with in this Tell It Like It Is Christ-centered series are as contemporary as tomorrow. Join us for answers to questions that really matter in this Bible Explorer series called Life, Love, and the Mystery. 
When you go through especially tough times, do you just sit and spin and ask why, why, why? Or do you know how to experience God's comfort? Do you have a close friend whose religious experience is oriented toward law? Do you know that the Bible teaches his mind is veiled? What scripture might you use to show your friend the surpassing beauty of Christ without tearing down the law? If you've ever been in a position where you found it necessary to fire someone or to bar someone from your church or family, what counsel does the Bible give for restoring that person into favor again? Have your credentials as a Christian ever been under assault? Where would you go in the Bible to find out how to fight back fair and square? Hi, I'm Duane Boyer. If any of these issues are important to you, I invite you to join me for the Bible Explorer series on 2 Corinthians entitled, The Strength of Weakness. You'll discover the warmth and strength of God's comfort in your life as we observe Paul's firsthand account of offering himself to God in weakness and finding in Christ the strength bigger than life itself. His perspectives on suffering and coming out a winner will inspire you to place your confidence in God, knowing He will never let you go. To order Dwayne Boyer's Bible Explorer series entitled The Strength of Weakness, Having Less, Depending More, please visit our website at ambassadorgroup.org. Let's continue exploring. The Apostle Paul has been compared with the butterfly effect in chaos theory that the flap of a butterfly's wings in California causes a hurricane in Asia. His work as a writer and preacher helped turn a Jewish sect in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire into a world religion. The ideas put forth in his 13 letters have probably exerted greater influence than any other ancient Greek literature of comparable size. Here are a few points to ponder and questions to consider. Paul avoided martyrdom by fleeing to Athens, the intellectual center of the Greco-Roman world. Cities provide shelter for refugees, including Christians. The apostle lost no time. After observing the city's religious monuments, he reasoned with the Jews and preached in the marketplace. The full story is found in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 31. As you listen to these verses, notice what approach Paul takes with these people, and how does it help to understand the need to tailor the message for various people groups? Okay, let's listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 31. Now while Paul was awaiting them at Athens, his spirit was grieved and aroused to anger as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned and argued in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worshipped there and in the marketplace where assemblies are held day after day with any who chanced to be there. Now at this point, it is going to sound as if his approach failed, but keep listening for the rest of the story. And some also of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and began to engage in discussion. And some said, What is this babbler with his scrap heap learning trying to say? Others said, He seems to be an announcer of foreign deities because he, Paul, preached Jesus and the, the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill meeting place, saying, May we know what this novel, unheard of, and unprecedented teaching is which you are openly declaring? For you set forth some startling things, foreign and strange to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, just what these things mean. For the Athenians, all of them, and the foreign residents and visitors among them, spent all their leisure time in nothing except telling or hearing something newer than the last. Undaunted, Paul now reasons with his critics. So Paul, standing in the center of the Areopagus, Mars Hill meeting place, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way, on every hand, and with every turn I make, that you are most religious or very reverent to demons. For as I passed along and carefully observed your objects of worship, I came also upon an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now what you are already worshipping as unknown, this I set forth to you. The God who produced and formed the world and all things in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in handmade shrines. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he lacked anything. For it is he himself who gives life and breath and all things to all people. And he made from one common origin, one source, one blood, all nations of men to settle on the face of the earth, having definitely determined their allotted periods of time and the fixed boundaries of their habitation, their settlements, their lands and abodes, so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him, although he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we ought not to suppose that deity, the Godhead, is like gold or silver or stone, of the nature of a representation by human art and imagination, or anything constructed or invented. Such former ages of ignorance God, it is true, ignored and allowed to pass unnoticed. But now he charges all people everywhere to repent, to change their minds for the better, and heartily to amend their ways with abhorrence of their past sins. Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world righteously, justly, by a man whom he has destined and appointed for that task, and he has made this credible, 
and given conviction and assurance and evidence to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul did not in any way water down or compromise truth in order to reach people, did he? In your attempts to reach people, how can you be certain that you don't compromise core beliefs? Why is the state of the dead such an important teaching? What are some of the many errors and deceptions that an understanding of this truth protects you against? What about your own culture? What are some of the beliefs that this biblical truth can be a protection against? What role did signs have to do in regard to your faith? Did logic and reason have a role as well? Would you be willing to talk about how you came to faith and what role such factors as, for example, signs or logic, etc., had in your experience? In your opinion, what role should they have, not just in coming to faith, but in maintaining faith? What about the majority of people in your society? What kind of background do they have? What kind of beliefs are the most common? Based on your understanding of their beliefs and background, what do you think would be the best approach to reach out to them? Thinking creatively, what are some entering wedges that would allow you to make effective contact in a way that would not offend them. Ambassadorgroup.org Thanks for listening. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.